0: and then welcome to our third Brexit webinar of 2020. I'm Susan Bright, Regional Managing Partner for the UK and Africa at Hogan Lovells, and leader of our Brexit Task Force. And I'm very pleased to be joined today by colleagues from across our firm. So firstly, Eduardo Usteran, who co-leads our Global Privacy and cybersecurity practice. Aileen Doucin, who heads our UK international trade team. Jane Summerfield, who's a partner who leads our life sciences practice here in the UK. Paul Chaplin, who's a counsel in our UK litigation team. Andrew Eaton, senior associate in our UK public law and policy team. And last but not least, Caitlin Weeks, who's a senior associate in our corporate team in London. So, looking at our agenda for today... um, uh, this is the third webinar in our current series, so the clock is ticking, and this series has been prepared to keep you informed and to prepare your business for change and also to help you to think about how to engage with and influence the UK's future trading, legal and regulatory positions as we move past Brexit Day into the transition period and beyond. So The clock is ticking. Today's webinar acknowledges that the negotiation phase of the process has begun to set the new relationship between the UK and the EU and that the countdown to the end of that transition period is now on. And after today, the series of all three webinars um, will be available on our Brexit hub, so please feel free to share them with any of your colleagues who are engaged in Brexit planning. And given the high level of engagement in these webinars so far this year, um we've decided to extend these this series to take a deeper dive into some of the topics that we've been covering and particular particularly in response to some of the questions that we've been receiving from you, our audience. So the first of the next um, part of our series will focus on the impact of Brexit and future trade deals on the tech sector and particularly in M and A across that sector. So the next webinar will be on the 26th of February. It's again a Wednesday from 3:30 to 4:30 UK time, and we'll send an invitation for that next webinar out, um, and we'll also let you know about um, future webinars in the series. So for today, um, we're providing our usual update on the status of the Brexit process, and in particular, what we can derive um, from this week's statements. From Boris Johnson and from Michel Barnier setting out the respective negotiating positions for each of the UK and the EU. Then we'll turn to practical issues for all businesses to be considering about supply chains, data protection and litigation, not just during this transition period but also using our crystal balls what we might expect thereafter. And then following up from last time, we did short updates on financial institutions and the automotive sectors. We'll also look at some key issues um, for our technology and life sciences sector clients. We're more than happy to take your questions as we go. Um, You can use, as usual, the question box on your webinar screen at any time to send them in. It's described as Q&A and technical support. The questions will come through direct to us they're not seen by any of the other participants on the webinar Um, we may of course choose to read out your question uh, live on the webinar and to respond we'll do that anonymously Um, we usually don't get through all the questions during our webinars but we do uh, try to follow up with um, those questions we've not been able to deal with during the webinar afterwards so um, with that turning to our brexit update I'm going to kick off by bringing Andrew and Aileen into a conversation. Andrew first. Brexit is done and the UK has left the EU. What happens next?
1: The UK has left the EU after 47 years of membership and three and a half years after the uh, result of the EU referendum. But as we've always said, Brexit is a process, not an event. The UK's relationship with the EU is no longer governed by the EU treaties. But instead, by the terms of the withdrawal agreement agreed in late 2019. As many will have noticed, not much has changed. As we all know, that's because the UK has entered the transition period provided for under the withdrawal agreement while it negotiates the next phase. During the transition, almost all EU laws continue to apply in the UK and to the UK and to all businesses and individuals present in the UK and in the EU member states as if the UK was still an EU member state. This means, until the end of the transition period, almost all EU regulations, directives, CJEU judgments, commission decisions, and other EU regulatory and administrative processes, apart from a small number of exceptions, continue to be binding. The UK will still be treated as a member state and not a third country for the purposes of many EU regulatory regimes. And also, licences and other authorisations provided to businesses under EU law or by EU bodies continue to be valid to, in the UK and in the EU throughout that period. This means that while the UK has formally left the EU, nothing really changes until the end of the transition, which is currently set to continue until the 31st of December 2020. By which point, the UK government and the EU aim to have successfully negotiated a new agreement to govern the EU. UK relationship from that point onwards.
0: And so what about the negotiations between the UK and the EU on their future relationship? When will those start? What are the key dates we should be looking out for over the next few months?
1: I think we could say that they've already started on Monday this week. The the UK and EU both published their respective negotiating positions on Monday. Boris Johnson, Prime Minister, gave a speech setting out his vision for the UK's trade policy post-Brexit albeit he didn't actually mention the B word by name, Uh, and that was accompanied by a, a more detailed policy statement in Parliament. This statement is actually relatively high level and likely only to be indicative of the UK's position, and that's probably because there's no requirement in law for any negotiating objectives to be approved by the UK Parliament. Michel Barnier also gave a speech on Monday, which was to announce the publication of the EU Commission's detailed draft negotiating mandate, which it is proposing that the European Council formally adopt at the next EU summit on the 27th of February. That will be the first EU summit after the UK has left the EU. So once the EU has formally adopted the negotiating mandate, the negotiations are due to commence formally in early March. Sequencing of negotiations is likely to be an early point of contention The Commission has already pointed out in its negotiating mandate that the UK and the EU agreed in the political declaration to use their best endeavours to conclude and ratify their new fisheries agreement by the 1st of July. It would appear then that much like the previous round of negotiations on the withdrawal agreement, the EU will look to stagger the negotiations so that it can secure agreement on the policy areas it cares about most, like fisheries, before moving on to other areas another point to watch out for uh, around this time is that on the 1st of July the option to extend the transition period lapses so if the if the parties don't agree to an extension before the end of June this option is no longer available uh, under the withdrawal agreement but of course the parties could agree in some other form to an extension at the moment though the government maintains the government of the UK that is maintains that it has no intention to seek an extension to the transition period. Therefore, given the tight time frame that parties will need to negotiate at pace throughout the year. The latest statements by the parties also shed light on their view of what happens if no agreement is reached by the end of the year. The UK government's position is that it has complete certainty that the process of the transition to the new relationship with the EU will complete by the end of 2020 whether or not a deal is reached. Reports suggest that the term no deal has been banned from being spoken in Whitehall as the government is trying to give the impression that it is fully prepared to walk away from negotiations if necessary. And Mr. Johnson has said that he is confident that the UK would prosper mightily in this situation, which he compared to the trading relationship uh, between the EU, the EU and Australia. What he didn't mention is that Australia currently has no formal trade agreement with the EU and is in fact in the process of trying to negotiate one. This has led the EU Commissioner for Trade, Phil Hogan, to describe Johnson's reference to an Australia-style outcome as really code for no deal. By contrast, the EU has simply said that it will seek to achieve as much as possible during the transition period and will be ready to continue negotiations on any remaining issues after that.
0: So what do we now know about the parties' respective positions and negotiations? Andrew, I'll turn first to you and then, and then to Aileen.
1: Sure. Uh, so we've, we've studied in detail the statements that were made this week, and you'll see some detail on the slide, but there's a, there's a more detailed um, version of that slide in the webinar pack. Um, and there are a number of points to pick up, which I'm sure Aileen will comment on in a moment, but just to provide a brief summary overview of, of where each of the parties are at. From a trade perspective both parties are seeking an ambitious and comprehensive agreement with zero tariffs on trading goods the removal of unnecessary barriers in trade in goods and services and a facilitative customs arrangement so really there's much that the parties already agree on in terms of the mutual access they would like to give each other's economy give to each other's economies however the key difference between them is the obligations That the EU expects the UK to sign up to in exchange for this access. This is what it calls the level playing field. These include robust commitments to prevent distortions of trade and unfair trading practices. The EU has said the UK should be bound in dynamic alignment with EU rules, including on state aid, uh, competition law, social policy, employment, and environmental standards, meaning that the UK will will be required to incorporate EU laws as they develop over time. The UK's response to that, though, is that it will not agree to be bound by these rules uh, because it doesn't consider it to be necessary. But Mr Johnson was at pains to stress in his speech that this is not because the UK plans to somehow undercut EU standards in a post-Brexit race to the bottom, the so-called Singapore on Thames model, He said that the UK will continue to maintain its high standards in these areas without the compulsion of a treaty with the EU. And he pointed as evidence of that to the fact that the UK has historically tended to spend less on state aid than other member states while in the EU. And in many areas where where divergence is already allowed between EU member states, such as under an EU directive, the UK has generally adopted higher standards than the EU average. Another point of difference between the parties is how they describe the agreement they are seeking. The UK government refers to a suite of agreements and states that in some areas, future cooperation does not even need to be managed by an international treaty at all. By contrast, the EU refers to a single package and emphasises the need for a coherent structure and that any agreement needs to be embedded in an overall governance framework. In practice, there is likely to be little difference in what the parties are actually saying they would like to agree but I think the descriptions used may highlight the approach that each party will take to negotiations. It seems to me to be a return of a familiar argument that we were having three and a half years ago about the UK seeking to cherry-pick benefits and obligations of membership of the EU, and the EU responding that any agreement must respect the integrity of the single market, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, and that the UK as a non-member cannot have the same rights and benefits as it did when it was a member.
0: Andrew, thank you. And so, Aileen, um, given the positions set out by the UK and the EU and your knowledge of other trade negotiations, how do you expect these negotiations
2: to progress over the coming months? Thank you, Suzanne. And I think, well, the main priority is timing, timing, timing. Both sides in the UK and the EU are absolutely determined that they need to negotiate a trade deal by the end of the implementation period or the transition period, however you want to call it. What's interesting, if you look at the economic uh, partnership, the economic elements of the trade elements of the UK mandate, and if you compare it in parallel with the EU27 mandate or the, the Commission proposal for a Council mandate, the um, key elements of that trading proposal are quite similar. On the UK side, the UK wants as much of an access as possible to the EU single market without the constraints, the legal constraints of being inside the EU internal market or the EU single market. From an economic perspective, what's very interesting in the UK mandate is that the UK is expressly referring to a free trade agreement that looks very much like what we as trade lawyers know from the EU-Canada free trade agreement. On the good side, the provision of that FTA will relate to, will go beyond the traditional rules that we know uh, on market access, trade remedies, and will extend to the so-called TBT, the technical barriers to trade, that will include standards, SPS, etc., and facilitation in customs cooperation. That will be key for our access and the flow of our goods from a UK and an EU perspective. Provision on trade in services from the UK side are addressed and ought to be included in the FTA in order to minimise barriers to the cross-border supply of services and investments. In areas of key interest, the UK says that it won't. In areas, so we have key interest including professional and business services that's very important for the businesses here that are on the line, they may be for the UK to go beyond what the EU and the UK have in their existing FTAs and really sort of set precedents for a much more mutual access in services than what we currently have in existing FTAs. The agreement should also address mutual recognition of UK and EU qualifications that's important for diplomas and and professionals who move from the UK to the EU and the other way around. And those should be underpinned by regulatory cooperation so that qualification requirements do not become an unnecessary barrier to trade. That's on the UK mandate side. On the EU side, the EU is pretty much outlining the same principles, although it doesn't really talk about a free trade agreement. It uses the word a free trade area, but that's basically the same thing. But again, going back to Andrew's point, it's the structure itself that that diverges from an EU mandate perspective because there should be an overarching framework for a free-trade agreement of that free-trade tra- free area to fall under, right? But the key difference, from an EU perspective, is really the fisheries agreement element. The, the EU Commission says that there will be no free-trade deal if there is no fisheries agreement. So that specific point, from an EU perspective, is expressly, expressly linked to uh, an EU-UK FTA. and just few minutes after the EU mandate was published on Monday, uh, the EU chief negotiator Michel Barnier was on the French radio and really made that point in French very clear that fisheries was and will be a key aspect of the negotiation for the EU. What's interesting as well is we talk about timing um, several times and as you know uh, when the EU concludes free, trad- free trade agreement there is a specific point of law that relates on timing because if the, EU, if the EU FTA is considered as a mixed agreement FTA, it needs to be ratified by all the different national parliaments. And that means a significant amount of time in order to get that FTA becoming EU law. Uh, Barnier and the Commission are of the view that the FTA will not will be an EU-only agreement, which means that the EU can ratify this FTA by itself on its own and it will not need to go through all the national parliament ratification processes. So just to sum up, in terms of the next steps, what will happen next? Well, remember that what we saw coming out of the EU is just the Commission proposal for a mandate that will go to the Council, the Council of the EU, not the European Council, and the Council of the EU is expected to discuss this recommendation on the 25th of February. In the meantime, the Parliament, the European Parliament today, will publish its own proposal for a mandate which... What we hear will be very close to what we saw coming out of um, the commission. There will be some additional elements with respect to GMOs, consumer protection, sorry, and a level playing field. And then the negotiations will start in March. Uh, We will have, um, um, and we hope that we will have a deal by the end of the transition period. Should the the, the negotiations be concluded by then, we will go through what we call the legal scrubbing of the text which means that the legal expert will review the negotiated text, and then it will have to be followed by translation of the official text in all the EU official languages. And then, of course, we will need to get the European Parliament to consent on the FTA, and the Council will adopt the final decision to conclude the agreement.
0: So Boris Johnson made sure to mention in his speech the UK's other trade negotiations with countries like the US, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Japan, so forth. How do you expect the UK's plan to negotiate these deals concurrently? Um, how do you think that
2: would impact on the negotiations
0: with the EU?
2: Okay, I will touch on the US uh, as, a, as a last point, because it's, it's the most important one. Canada and Japan already have their own FTA, their own trading agreement with the EU. So what we know is that the EU is obviously in an advanced position here, because we there was already an FTA that was concluded. Um, a few years ago, Japan last year, and Canada a few years ago with, with the EU, so we would expect that Canada and Japan will enter the negotiations with the UK uh, on the same baseline as how they entered the negotiations with the EU. But the talks with the US are much more complex. For one thing, there are some still serious points of disaccord on very key issues of the UK-US trading relationship or the UK-US um, political relationship with respect to a, G- a UK digital services tax and the Iranian nuclear deal, so that will play out in the upcoming U.S.-U.K. trade talks. And the current current trade tensions between the U.S. and the E.U. over the Airbus subsidies that directly implicate the U.K. are not currently solved. The U.S. administration has currently not given any indication that it would exempt Britain from tariffs placed on E.U. imports over retaliation for subsidies to Airbus. But there is a clear political significance in the UK to conclude a trade agreement with the US. It's a significant polit- political importance, and to some extent, that political significance could outweigh the um, economic reality of any potential UK US free trade agreement. Thank you very much, Aileen. So we're now going to
0: move on to considerations for business. Um, And I think we'll start with supply chains and with Jane. So um, what are the key considerations for businesses in relation to their supply chains during the transition period, starting
3: there? Thanks, Susan. So during the transition period, UK and EU supply chains can continue to operate as they did prior to the UK leaving the EU. So it may feel that in the immediate term there's nothing much to do. But actually, there are two areas in which businesses can start to take action now to ensure they're in a good position for what may or may not happen at the end of the year. Looking ahead and starting to anticipate the issues that could arise at the end of the transition period in your supply chains is important. And the two areas in which you can start to do this are firstly to think about your existing supply chain and the contractual arrangements that you have in place to underlie that structure. Now, one practical step to do that is to dust off your no-deal contingency plans, or if you didn't get that far previously, to start to map out your existing supply chain and then identify the potential impacts. Now, that may sound like a, um, an obvious thing to do, and it also feel like a long way off yet before you'll need to do it, but one of the, one of the uh, issues we saw come up when we were helping companies to prepare for a no-deal Brexit last year was that actually getting that information internally can take a lot longer and be more challenging than you might expect. So getting getting on the front foot and getting ahead now and starting to ensure you have that information will help put you in a good position to respond quickly later in the year. Past that process, it's also advisable to start thinking about which of your contracts are, are critical to your business and which of those will also run past the end of the transition period. The second action you can start to take at this point is thinking about how Brexit may play out in the contracts that you're entering to now or starting to renew. So, the kind of issues to start preempting um, are thinking about where you might face things like increased costs or delivery delays, um, or whether your existing limitations and liability are appropriate now. So, starting to build in mechanisms to address those in negotiations that you're having at this point. It's going to be much easier to preempt that now than to start having those conversations at the end of the year or beginning of next year. Um, also, starting to think about whether you might need additional termination rights, whether you might need to have stockpile goods at the end of the year. So, just start to anticipate at this point what you may or may not need at the end of the year
0: thank you Jane turning now to Paul and disputes during this transition period um, how is Brexit going to impact disputes and litigation during the transition period and how does the withdrawal agreement cater to all this?
4: well as Andrew said earlier on uh, in this um, webinar um, in short nothing really changes um, subject to a lacuna I'll come on to um, later um, pursuant to Article 127 of the Withdrawal Agreement, EU law will continue to apply. The Rome regulations on governing law will continue to apply, and English and EU courts will continue to respect a party's choice of law. The same is um, true for the recast Brussels regulation. That will also um, apply, and that means that rules regarding jurisdiction and enforcement of judgments between, as between the UK and the EU will remain unchanged. So, during the transition period, um, English judgments will be treated as the judgment of a member state. The UK will also continue to apply international agreements on jurisdiction and enforcement, so the Hague Convention and the Lugano Convention. So, to give an example, you will still be able to enforce a Swiss judgment in the English courts pursuant to the Lugano Convention. There is, however, a lacuna to this, as I mentioned earlier. So, the EU will notify the counterparties to those international agreements, stating that they're going to treat the UK as a member state during the transition period, and they will ask the counterparties to do the same, but there's no certainty that they will do so. And as such, if you want to enforce an English judgment in Switzerland during the transition period, you might have to rely, for example, on Swiss domestic law to do so and that may mean that there are greater and more time-consuming procedural um, hoops to jump through.
0: Thank you Paul. Um, Moving on, sticking with the transition period but moving on to data protection. Eduardo, what should businesses be aware of during this transition period in terms of data?
5: Well, um, let me start with some good news for you. Um, (laughs) As we have heard so far, the the law doesn't change, and the same applies to data protection law. So the GDPR will be equally applicable to the UK throughout the transition period, which means that on the key issue of EU-UK data transfers there is no change whatsoever to the regime as it applies today. There are other issues which um, uh, are starting to become a bit more difficult. During the transition period, so far, the ICO will continue to be able to operate as a lead authority. That means that if a company or an organization operates across the EU, it is subject to the exclusive competence of that lead authority. And if the company has its European headquarters within the United Kingdom, then the ICO will be able to play that role. But there is a twist to to this. The whole concept of the lead authority also relies on what is called the consistency mechanism. That is, that the measures that that lead authority may adopt from a regulatory or, or enforcement perspective will also be overseen by the European Data Protection Board. However, As of Brexit, that is, this weekend, or last weekend, the ICO is no longer able to participate as a full member of the European Data Protection Board because whilst European law applies in the UK, the UK may not be part of any of the bodies or institutions of the European Union. That's why our members of Uh, the European Parliament from the UK had to say goodbye to their colleagues at the end of last week, and the ICO had to also say goodbye to their colleagues at the end of last week. So what does it mean in practice? So what this means is that we do have now nearly 11 months to prepare for what happens next, but it is important, as we have heard also from Jane, that we use this time wisely. What that means in practice is that First of all, from the point of view of international data transfers between the EU and the UK and the UK and the EU, we need to bear in mind what what those transfers are and where they are taking place so that, for example, if there is an intergroup agreement within a multinational, that intergroup agreement is amended so that the UK entities are identified as importers of personal data from the European Union. And then from the point of view of the scrutiny of the regulator, if you want to continue to benefit from the one-stop-shop mechanism under which the the lead supervisory authority has that exclusive competence, one needs to start thinking about which European data protection authority in which jurisdiction is going to be the, the next, lead authority, or in practical terms, where within that remaining number of EU member states, there is your best uh, hope for having a so-called main establishment. And finally, a really important point, particularly for those organizations looking to adopt or operating under binding corporate rules, the binding corporate rules approach is also supervised by a lead Data Protection Authority, and it's very important that if that application is underway, we use the the next 11 months to ensure a seamless process of handover between the ICO and the new lead authority.
0: And so, Eduardo, looking forward, 11 months time, what do you expect to happen after the end of the transition period? Well,
5: the, the big question is whether the UK will be adequate from the point of view of European data protection law. That is a legal term that means that any personal data can flow freely, so there is free movement of data from the EU to the UK, even after the transition period. For that to happen, the European Commission will need to declare the UK adequate, which means that the framework The legal framework and the regulatory um, approach and the regulator match those conditions and those standards as we have seen in the European Union, which you would think is a really easy easy win for the UK, given that we are already and we have implemented the GDPR. However, the wrinkle here is that uh, just two days ago, the prime minister, as part of the statement that Andrew was referring to earlier, said that in the future, the UK will develop its own separate and independent policies in a number of areas, including data protection, which could mean that there is a start to, towards divergence in terms of European data protection law and UK data protection law, which could have a detrimental impact on the chances of the UK to be declared adequate. So the next few months will be really important, and the political climate will be really relevant in this context. To this, to, to know whether the UK continues to be adequate, or organisations need to bear that in mind and operate as if they were in a uh, in a jurisdiction that is no longer adequate.
0: Eduardo, thank you. So turning back again to disputes, back to to Paul, once we reach the end of the transition period, what will be the position in relation to the important matters that you referred to earlier, like governing law, enforcement of judgments, and how will this impact disputes? Will any of those transitional provisions set out in the withdrawal agreement continue to have effect after the end of this year? Are there any pitfalls that we all need to be looking out for
4: Well, um, if by the end of the transition period there is no deal agreed, which covers civil judicial cooperation, then we've got provisions already lined up in the EU Withdrawal Act, and those will apply. And as we've mentioned on previous webinars, um, the EU Withdrawal Act essentially takes a snapshot of EU law at the the time of the end of the transition period, and then that is then put into UK law. And then this is then amended through various Brexit um, SIs. So governing law is um, probably the easiest bit to deal with, because the Rome regulations will continue to apply in both the UK and the EU um, 27, and as such, the courts in the EU 27 and the UK will continue to respect a party's choice of law. Um, That's because those regulations um, don't rely on reciprocity. Um, The choice of law doesn't need to be a choice of law um, of an EU jurisdiction, so that makes it much more simple. If you then look at some jurisdiction and enforcement, um, you were asking earlier about the withdrawal agreement, and it does have transitional provisions um, that relate to civil um, cooperation. And as such, the recast Brussels regulations will continue to apply to proceedings, but only those proceedings that commence before the end of the transition period. Um, Whether transitional provisions don't apply, um, that's for claims issued after the 31st of December um, 2020, there's much more uncertainty. As to what happens next, well, I don't actually have an answer for that. Um, It will depend on any further arrangements that are agreed between the UK and the EU. It will also partly depend on further UK legislation that's put in place before the end of the transition period. And the recent Queen's speech gave a, a, a taster for what may be to come. The key point, though, for claims issued after the end of the transition period is that the recast Brussels regulation will no longer be relevant to questions of jurisdiction and enforcement, as between the UK and the EU. And litigants will have to consider whether, firstly, if there's an exclusive jurisdiction agreement and then whether or not the Hague Convention itself will then apply. But if it doesn't, then they'll have to look at domestic rules on jurisdiction and enforcement in the relevant member state. Um, I mean that's not a disaster most EU 27 countries will enforce foreign judgments and of course they've been doing so for um, many decades with non EU judgments for example Japanese and US judgments Um, the only difference might be that the type of judgment enforced may be more limited and there may be greater procedural hurdles of course local law advice may be required the um, final point to note um, is that the UK will no longer be party to the Hague Convention and the Lugano Convention by um, virtue of its EU membership. Um, we know that the UK intends to independently accede to Hague on the 1st of January 2021. Um, that doesn't require the consent of the other contracting states, so it should be fairly straightforward. The UK has also expressed an intention to accede to the Lugano Convention. In contrast, this requires the consent of the other contracting states and can't be guaranteed.
0: Thank you very much. And just to complete our little tour, Jane, coming back to you, same question really in relation to supply chains, what do you think the key considerations for business will be after the end of the transition period? So
3: similar to Paul's just said, for supply chains, um, obviously it's very much dependent on the outcome of the negotiations. Um, but whatever that outcome is it's very likely there will be changes to customs processes and in the short term potential disruption to supply chains so obviously starting to anticipate those delays at this stage and then um, planning and implementing changes once we finish the transition period to address those. So the kind of operational changes we may be looking at may be things like different registrations for VAT, new customs processes, changes to your internal IT systems to be able to deal with those. So actually making sure businesses are operationally able to react to those changes quickly um, and in some cases take advantage of them, for example, updating IT systems. Um, Also, as the future relationship becomes clearer, um, it's important to think about whether opportunities potentially in supply chains as well, whether there may be benefits where you can pass risk on to other parties. It's also important to consider your upstream and downstream suppliers and customers. So as much as you plan and control your supply chain, it only takes one supplier upstream um, to to impact on on your risk levels and cause you problems. So also uh, at this stage, but also after the transition period, making sure you're in dialogue with your key suppliers and key customers. Um, The other element to think about is it's not just supply chains in the UK, and this is a a topic that comes up time and time again. Any supply chain involving the EU um, or supply chains outside of the EU and UK which are reliant on a key supplier or key customer in the UK or EU needs to be factored into your operational planning.
0: Thank you, Jane.
3: Um, Before we turn
0: on to our industry sector perspectives, I'm just going to pick up a couple of questions that have come through from our audience. Um, I think these are both for you, Aileen. So the first one is, how can we, the UK and the EU, negotiate and ratify in 10 months a free trade agreement, whereas usually we need three, four to X years to conclude with other partners?
2: Great question. Thank you, Suzanne. Um, I mean, indeed, if we manage to get that FTA um, uh, negotiated, finalized, uh, negotiated, finalized, and ratified by the end of December 2020, that would be. Uh, unprecedented for A, the EU to negotiate so, so quickly and, and so fast, and for the, the UK to have concluded such a comprehensive trading uh, arrangement in, in, in less than a year. Uh, but, um, so it, it will be very challenging, and, and the negotiations have not formally started, so we don't even have – we have 10 months as per the, the question. What's worth bearing in mind is we are not – I mean, the UK, we are not just like how Japan entered its negotiation with the EU, or the Australians are, are entering the negotiations with the EU. Because we are starting from a point sorry we are starting from a point of alignment as a member of the EU, so we would expect of course that that's a clear competitive advantage in, in making sure that you can get the deal through very quickly. The main point and this is what Eduardo, for instance, was saying on data is to what extent we will see a clear uh, political line in the context of these talks from the UK side to diverge in a number of areas that will form part of the FTA, and that will make the negotiations and the talks much more difficult and, um, um, by ricochet, much more lengthy. Thank you. And
0: if I may, a second one, um, a very practical question regarding impacts to the supply chain. Are there still concerns, Aileen, about long custom delays at the border at the end of this year, so at the end of the transition period?
2: So in a, in a nutshell, yes. Uh, yes on customs delays. Um, uh, long custom, de- custom delays we don't know as yet. But what is really worth remembering and hardlining here on the call is that regardless of the shape of the FTA that we will have, even if it's comprehensive and ambitious, and we would hope that it will be comprehensive and ambitious, we will come out of the free movement of goods. And that will mean that there will be customs checks occurring between the UK and the EU, which means that all the 27 member states contingency preparations on customs that we've seen occurring over the past year, and, and, and the UK has done the same thing with the on the UK side, those are still ongoing because we will have to check goods at borders. So there will be customs checks. We would hope that there will not be so much long delays, but there will be delays and more delays than what we see today, of course. Thank you very much.
0: We'll move on now to our industry sector perspectives. And I'm going to start with with tech and the tech world. So, Caitlin, what are people in the tech world, whether they're tech companies or companies that use tech, what are they most focused on at the moment?
6: So, as Andrew mentioned earlier, the really strong message coming from the UK government at the moment is very much the UK is open for business and technology has been identified as one of its priority sectors. The government could certainly seek to use its post-Brexit freedom to drive a more dynamic agenda with a view to encouraging technology companies to build their businesses in the UK. And then when you piece that together with the government's focus on seeking investment in areas of the UK outside of the South East, there are real opportunities for tech investors who are prepared to look beyond London and Cambridge. But it's really important to reiterate here that when we talk about tech, we're not just referring to traditional technology companies. This really does apply to technology and innovation in all sorts of businesses from driverless cars and fintech to digital health and in terms of regulation the global survey on digital regulation that we completed last year showed that tech regulation is a really hot topic for regulators around the world so in the first half of 2019 alone across 16 jurisdictions we identified over 450 individual proposals for the regulation of technology companies and European politicians and other stakeholders were the most active in coming up with regulatory proposals in the tech field. As I say, the messaging from the UK government is that they're very keen for the UK to become a tech-friendly jurisdiction, which may suggest that UK regulators are going to seize the opportunity to position themselves as world leaders in creating smarter tech regulation, much as they did for FinTech by cre- creating the regulatory sandbox. But the flip side of this, of course, is that the EU could pull even harder the other way and become an even more conservative and formulaic in its approach to tech regulation. And that wouldn't be good news for many in the tech sector, given the dynamic and fast-paced way in which these companies have to develop and innovate. And so with this in mind, it's really important for tech businesses to think about how they can be alive to the risk that EU regulation may get even more challenging in the near future this also means that for tech companies, even more than those operating in other sectors, actively engaging with the public policy agenda in the UK, but also in Brussels and other key member states, is, cru- is crucial. In the UK, at least, the government is actively looking for input on how it can realise its vision, which gives businesses a platform to help to shape government priorities. And this engagement is also a really important opportunity to emphasize those areas like science and innovation, where continued cooperation between the UK and the EU is likely to be particularly productive. And this does take us back to the central issue of the tension between regulatory divergence and cooperation with the EU. And just one example of how that could play out for those in the tech sector is the GDPR adequacy assessment that Eduardo discussed earlier. This really does show the potential conflict between the uk's alignment with the eu with regards to the protection of privacy and the limits around the processing of personal data and the uk becoming more attractive and so perhaps more flexible in terms of data regulation when it's looking at negotiating a new trading relationship with the us from an M&A perspective that does mean that if you're looking at buying a business which is reliant on data transfers between the uk and the eu you need to consider the possibility that the flow of personal data may be restricted after the end of the transition period if the adequacy test isn't met. And these issues all raise really important questions for those businesses which operate or are looking to invest in the tech sector. And so, as you mentioned earlier Susan, we've arranged a special webinar on Wednesday the 26th of February, in which we'll take a deeper dive into the impact that Brexit and the ongoing trade negotiations will have on tech M&A.
0: Brilliant, thank you and look forward to having you on next time. So turning finally back to Jane in relation to life sciences, I mean obviously your comments about supply chains are very relevant, um, but what other impacts
3: are there on the life sciences industry, Jane? So during the transition period, little changes for life sciences companies. Both the European Medicines Agency and Department of Health published statements at the end of January confirming no immediate changes to the regulation supply of medicines and medical devices. So For now, the UK and the EU continue to recognise each other's inspections, batch testing, notified bodies, as was the case before the UK left the EU. The biggest immediate difference is that the UK can no longer participate in the EMER decision-making process. Beyond the transition period, the key questions for the life sciences industry are very much the future customs position and how closely tied UK regulation will be with EU legislation. Depending on the terms of any eventual trade deal, it's possible that the EU will no longer recognise UK inspections and batch testing, etc. The EMA plans to publish new Brexit guidance shortly on what businesses need to change by the end of the transition period. At a domestic level, the Conservative Election Manifesto specifically highlighted the importance of the life sciences industry for the UK and set out the ambition to make the UK the leading global hub for life sciences after Brexit. While in practice, the UK will likely continue to follow EU regulation closely for medicines and devices to not create barriers to entry to the UK market, the government's also indicated that there will be some changes to develop a streamlined and internationally competitive approach to regulation, particularly for innovative medicines and devices. These changes are likely to include things like accelerated approval processes for new medicines and medicines being assessed for approval in the EU, uh, greater coordination between the authorisation uh, and health technology assessment processes. We'd like to see a raft of legislation and policies put in place to support the UK life science industry, including increased investment in research and health data systems. The UK has already introduced a new Medicines and Medical Devices Bill, which is intended to encourage innovation in the life science industry. It includes things like simplifying the process for running low-risk clinical trials in the UK, and measures to support the use of artificial intelligence in healthcare settings. There'll undoubtedly, undoubtedly be some challenges for life sciences companies operating in the UK that will need to be addressed, but also likely some very interesting opportunities on the horizon as well. Brilliant, thank you. Um, so we have another question we have
0: time for, and I think this is one for you probably, Andrew. So um, Monday's speech by the Prime Minister was the first time the UK government has set out its ambitions for the UK's post-Brexit trade policy. How do you think this will relate to the government's wider policy agenda?
1: Thanks, Susan. Um, I think there's a a common theme through the whole of this webinar that was about this tension, as as Caitlin put it, between the UK continuing to cooperate and starting from a position of alignment with the EU and finding a new form of relationship that allows for that continued alignment and access to the EU on the one hand, but then this need for autonomy and, and the, the UK government's desire to want to forge its own path and create, you know, a business-friendly environment for for new uh, dynamic tech companies, for example. And, and I think that's why for businesses, the Prime Minister's speech on Monday is significant because it confirms for the first time, as the questioner says, that the, the UK, while the UK is not prepared to commit to or commit to dynamic alignment with EU rules, uh, in the in the agreement itself, um, the government's policy intention is not actually to diverge from EU regulation in practice, at least immediately, uh, and at least unless there's a good reason to do so. So what that really means is, even though we, the government doesn't want to formally commit to never not apply EU rules, it in practice probably will continue to do so. So I guess the, the success of the negotiations will depend on whether the EU is prepared to just take the UK's word for it, that it won't diverge, or whether the lack of commitments in the agreement will actually mean that the EU is not prepared to enter any deal at all. But another reason why the the speech is important is because the, the, the government really has made clear that the political imperative is to demonstrate that the UK has this choice as to whether it can align or not with the EU in future as a consequence of Brexit, thus satisfying the political calls to take back control But when it comes to exercising that choice, the government will continue to be driven by, or at least cognizant of, the economic drivers behind what can make the UK a successful uh, place to do business. So the government's focus would instead be on making the UK a hub for global free trade through boosting investment in education, science, technology, infrastructure, uh, as Caitlin mentioned, Uh, and through uh, initiatives like freeports. I guess the the, the government's aim here would be to counterbalance any increased friction with uh, the EU-UK trading relationship um, and with the the incentives on businesses, for example, in tax and other policy areas, uh, to to encourage them to continue to establish themselves in the UK, notwithstanding that additional friction. The challenge for the government will be how it aligns. I think the question was... Is going to uh, how the government will align this strategy with the UK's wider policy agenda, uh, including leveling up uh, the regions, in order to keep those borrowed votes from the former red wall constituencies in northern England. We know, for example, the government is rewriting the Treasury Green Book to redefine what value for money means in terms of future products and infrastructure investment undertaken by central government because the current rules favour projects and investment in London and the South East. So we can expect the government to be particularly attuned to ways in which its post-Brexit trade policy, which we've been talking about today, can dovetail nicely with ensuring more investment and jobs in the the north and west of England. It remains to be seen, obviously, how and whether this can be achieved, and it will in no small part be down to whether the EU is willing to accept uh, a lack of commitment, if that's what the UK is offering. Uh, and obviously, if if, it's not, uh, if, if no deal is, is reached by the end of the year, whether the government can um, weather the short-term impact to the economy of the potential uh, di- disruption to the, the lack of a trading relationship beyond the end of the transition. However, uh, we can now say that businesses have a much better sense of the UK's intended direction of travel uh, than they have had for some time since the uh, referendum.
0: Andrew, thank you very much. I think that really um, brings us to conclude um, the webinar for today. There are some questions that we haven't had time to respond to, so we'll come back to those people who pose those questions uh, separately afterwards. Um, It remains for me to say that we look forward to the further sessions on this um, series, which will begin, as we said, in three weeks' time, with the next one looking at Brexit and Tech M&A, which will be on Wednesday, the 26th of February, again at 3.30 UK time. So details of this and other future webinars will be sent to you by email and also will be available on our Brexit Hub. And as always, um, if you want to discuss um, how Brexit will impact on your business in more detail, either during the transition period or afterwards, do get in touch by contacting one of today's speakers or a member of our Brexit Task Force or just by emailing us at brexit at hoganlovels.com. So do, as I say, join us on the 26th of February. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to all the speakers who joined me today. uh, And see you next time.